Matthew 5, 43 through 48. This is a, um, <clears throat> all these, are, these passages, these texts are familiar to all of us. We've heard them uh, numbers of times, though we've been negligent, I think, in a lot of ways in, um, in actually teaching them in the way that we should. So we, we haven't spent a lot of time <clears throat> traditionally in evangelical churches circles, I think, studying the Sermon on the Mount for whatever reason. There's plenty of, um, plenty of thoughts about that as to why we haven't. Some people believe that uh, the Sermon on the Mount applies to a future time, that it's pointing toward the culmination of God's kingdom and not something that is relevant to us today. I don't believe that, and and I don't think um, I don't think there's a lot of support for that. So um, it's something that has just unfortunately gone under our radar. And um, chapters five, six, and seven in Matthew are probably the most poignant um, and concise discipleship material that you'll find in the Scripture. And so it's uh, we're well served, I think, to study it. We've heard a lot of these verses uh, time and time again, but I'm not sure how often we actually break them down and study them. Uh, I ran across a poll that was conducted by Lifeway Research. It's three or four years old now, I'm thinking. <clears throat> that found that many of us are very picky about who we will pray for. For instance, the poll revealed that we typically pray for family and friends. Want to take a guess? How often? How much of the time? Percentage? 90. 90? Anybody else? 50? Yeah, 82% of the time is what they found, that we pray for family and friends. Our own problems and difficulties. 100%. Yeah, only 74. 74%. Uh, our enemies? Two. Two? Yeah. Well, I was kind of surprised by this one, although it's uh, it's not uh, anything to get excited about, but it actually was 37%. I thought I was encouraged by that because I expected it to be like you, very low. Government leaders, 12%. They do, they do need it, and we talk about it a lot, so I don't know what where the disconnect is there. Strangely enough, 36% of survey participants said they typically pray for financial prosperity. That's one out of every three. 21% pray to win the lottery. I think you could probably put those two together, couldn't you? And 13% pray for their favorite sports team to win. So one in ten. So let's think about this passage here um, because he's talking about praying and loving not people that we would think that it would come natural for us to do that, but about people that we maybe don't think about. He talks about enemies. 
being the recipients of our love and our prayer. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we'll kind of follow the same pattern we've been following with some of these and think about the Old Testament teaching, what the law said. And uh, this is where the rabbinical tradition came from as they're looking at the law and they're interpreting it according to what made sense to them. And then many times they tinker with it to make it even more like what they want it to be. Because they realize they can't, they can't keep it the way that it was written. So um, Leviticus 19.18 is at the heart of this, um, this little section in Matthew. Come over there and read this. 19.18, Leviticus says, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge, bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this is repeated in the New Testament in numerous places, like the one we're looking at here tonight. But Matthew 19, 19 says, Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Twenty-two thirty-nine says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12, 31. Says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we get that, don't we? What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And there's a second likened to it. To love your neighbor as yourself. First question out of the gate is, who's my neighbor, right? That's the question. But isn't that the question that's always asked when we see it in Scripture? Who's my neighbor? How often should I love them? What do we mean by love? How would you define love? We understand this part down here. This up here we like to quibble with. Who's this? What is this? And what are the implications? What do we do with that? What is it? How do we represent this love? How do we show this love for our neighbor? Yep, Jesus used the Good Samaritan parable uh, to teach us a little bit about this. <clears throat> uh, let me give a, a few verses here for you to read for me. I'm going to start on this side of the room because we always start over here on this side with J.C. and James. 
Uh, Scott, if you look up Romans 13, 9. Stu, will you look up Galatians 5, 14. King, if you look up James 2, verse 8. Uh, Patrick, if you look up Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4. Sam, Proctor, Luke 10, 30 through 37. Luke 10, 30 through 37. Bob, if you'll do Job 31, 29 and 30. Valentina, would you like one? No? What was the Job? Job 31, 29 and 30. James 2, verse 8. Judy, would you like one? Uh, Psalm 7, 4 through 5. Sam, Psalm 35, 12 through 15. David, Proverbs 17, 5. Phil, Proverbs 24, 29. Paul, Proverbs 25, 21. Surely, if you'll do Matthew 6, 5 and 16. Matthew 6, verse 2, verse 5 and verse 16. Okay? Alright, love, love for the neighbor. Romans 13, 9. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. Galatians 5.14 The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8 If you fulfill, <clears throat> fulfill to war law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. Now, <clears throat> I've given you, what, six or eight references here in just a matter of minutes, and all of them say the same thing, don't they? This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. This is an important deal. It's not something that's just a one-off. It's, it's constantly put before us from the Scripture. This is always God's standard. God's standard. God's expectation. Love your neighbor. As you would yourself. Most of us don't like to think about loving ourselves, but we do, don't we? Depending, I guess, on which side of the spectrum you're on in our culture today. Some people would say, well, you know, I need to learn to love myself more. I don't know that any of us need, you know, to go to school on that, do we? Most of us <clears throat> have a lot of love for ourselves. Even the people who have low self-esteem, the reason their self-esteem is where it is is because they've been wounded and it's because they have a great love for themselves, right? They're hurt. Uh, God's standard always... Always, always, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. It, this summation of the law 
has a vertical aspect and it has a horizontal aspect. Loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4. How many of you own donkeys? Anybody own a donkey in here? A horse? Cow? Goats? Wow. We've, things have changed, haven't they? So today we don't own livestock as much, but we own cars and, and we own, you know, we have electricity and, and all those kind of things and we have apparatuses that we use for our health and things like that that we're dependent upon and so but but what he's saying is he's talking to the israelites he's talking to god god's talking to his people and he says if one of your countrymen you know one of his livestock that he depends upon this is his livelihood a donkey cow goat whatever it may be gets loose and you find it walking around straying then you're to take it in and take care of it. Feed it, make sure it's in good health until you can find the owner and return it, okay? If you don't know who it is, if you can't identify it, then you take care of it until you can, which could be a long-term investment, right? Knowing at any point in time, he could show up on your door and claim it and you've got a big investment in it maybe. You know, you've been feeding this pig for six months and it comes time to butcher it and the owner shows up and says, hey, that's my pig. You know, you got a lot invested and you get nothing back out of it. And he says, but this is the way you conduct yourself. This is loving your neighbor. This is caring for your neighbor, right? That's what the scripture tells us. This is what God expects. Um, if a countryman was to be helped with his animal, his animal fell down, broke a leg, something like that, you're to come alongside him and help him in his times of stress, distress, whatever it may be. God's people also were commanded to do the same favors, not only for their countrymen, but for their enemies. Luke 10, 30 through 37. And they replied, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him out of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened be going by on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins. And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you may have. Which of these do you think was uh, the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus told them, go and do likewise. Yeah. <clears throat> Priest and Levite equal what? Religion. Jews. These were God's people. These were uh, people who were supposed to be experts in the law. They were experts in the things that God prescribed for his people to do. These are the people you would expect to do the right thing, right? If anybody's going to do it, you would expect them to. They are going from Jerusalem down to Jericho on this road. It's downhill. It's down the mountain. In other words, they just finished their shift they finished their time in the city at the temple. They should be filled up, right, spiritually? Now they're on their way down. And this guy's hurt. He's bleeding. Danger of dying. Somebody doesn't take care of him. That's a desert area. It's a wilderness area. It gets cold at night. There are robbers everywhere, you know. So he's already been beaten. And these guys see him and intentionally go away from him to avoid having to do anything with him. Show me that. I'm just telling you what's in the scripture. I know. But is that what we do though sometimes when we should be the, should be the smart the Samaritan? Yeah, I mean, Samaritan, these are the people that were the natural enemies of the Jewish people. Now we assume that the guy that's beaten and lying there is a Jew. He's one of them. And his own countrymen who are supposed to take care of his animals if he finds them out won't even take... And these guys are called to the priesthood. They're called to be God's servants and administer the religious participation, sacrifices and things. They won't even take time for a human being. And then Jesus says, but there's a Samaritan going down. Now, you think that didn't get the attention of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you don't understand the culture and the context here. Jesus says, but the Samaritan came by and saw the man and went to him and started dressing his wounds, started taking care of him, bandaged him up, put him on his own, uh, his own mode of transportation, his own camel, his own horse, or his own donkey, and took him on down the mountain to Jericho to an inn where he put him in a room and paid for the room. And when he had to leave and continue on to do his business, left money with the innkeeper and said, make sure that he gets taken care of and I'll be back in a couple of days. And when I come back, anything else you've had to spend, I'll reimburse you for it. The Pharisees and scribes have got to be boiling right now. How dare he? To say that a Samaritan would do this, and none of us would. But that's the attitude that they're demonstrating when he says, love your neighbor. They're going, well, what's love mean exactly? And who's my neighbor? And Jesus <coughs> said, I'll tell you who the neighbor is. It's, your, it's the guy that you hate the worst. It's the guy you despise. It's the guy that you don't think is your neighbor. It's the one guy that you would single out and say, that's the guy that I shouldn't take care of. And Jesus said, that is your neighbor. If you do it for an animal, why wouldn't you do it for another human being? Job 31, 29 through 30. 
have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. No action or attitude disparaging or harming others was acceptable even for enemies outside of formal warfare, right? I mean, if you're engaged in war, I mean, we know in the Old Testament, God told the Israelites when they went into Canaan, I want you to purge the land. You purge these people. This is judgment. This is God's judgment. This is God's discipline. So they're just carrying out his instructions. But in the daily of lives, apart from a formal war situation, you're to treat, you're not to disparage or demean or do anything to harm your enemies. Psalm 7, 4, and 5. So it's wrong to do evil against someone, even someone who's done evil to you. We don't repay evil for evil. Hmm? Vengeance is the Lord's. That's right. Uh, Psalm 35, 12 through 15, Sam. Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. 24, 29. I will do so to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty... Give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his, on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Okay. Anybody fuzzy or unclear about what the Old Testament taught in regards to loving your neighbor, caring for your neighbor, being compassionate toward your neighbor, and who your neighbor was? Even including your enemy, right? Including the guy across the street that you don't get along with, right? The guy that, you know, continues to steal your newspaper and and kick your dog every chance, chance he gets, you are still obligated to treat him well. Loving him. Being compassionate toward him. That's what the Old Testament taught. So how did the Jewish leadership and rabbinic tradition pervert this tradition? Because that's what Jesus is addressing. They have perverted what... The Old Testament was teaching what all Scripture teaches. They were undoing it. Or they had made it, designed it, so it was more comfortable for them. You have heard it said. Jesus starts this out, right? You've heard it said. Who's he referring to? He's referring to these rabbis, these these guys that are in leadership, and how they're twisting the law, 
how they're putting their interpretation on what the Old Testament said. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's what they were teaching. Love your neighbor. He's saying, you've heard it said. You've heard them say, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, but you don't have to take care of your enemy. You can dichotomize people. You've got people here who are your pets and your favorites, your kinsmen, your countrymen, whoever they may be. The people that fit your parameters, those people you love, other people you don't have to love. That's what they perceived and interpreted. That was their slant on the Old Testament. The leadership talked love. They taught love for those that agreed with them. If we're in agreement, if we think alike, if our demographics are the same, if we agree on things, I, lo I love you, I like you. Now this starts plowing close to us in our churches because, you know, didn't James address this about being paying deference to people that come in with their jewelry and fine clothing and stuff that are clearly uh, rich and, and we bend over backwards for them and ignore the one who's not. And churches churches tend to do this too. We, we tend to be homogenous in who we are, so that we attract people like us. And then when people like us come in, we like those people, and people who come in are not like us, it's easy for us to not put our best foot forward, shall we say it that way. Now, I, this church has come a long way at a good, good place in that. I don't think that's true here. Maybe at a time where there was, I don't know. But, uh, but I'm saying I think this church has become uh, all-embracing. Uh, I see it, I hear it from people who visit, even people who don't stay, who visit here and don't stick. And they may, there are other reasons that move them along, but they have, you know, good things to say about the way they're treated at this church and the way they're made to feel. That's, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that we're perfect. We've got things to learn, obviously, but it's a good place, it's a good place to be headed. Enemies, on the other hand, we love those that we agree with. We love those that we identify with, but our enemies, not so much. They were to be hated. So the first part of the statement is obviously accurate. Love, love your neighbor. The second part, the first part makes us think that the second part in this bad statement, this perverted statement, it implies that it would be true as well. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, and if that's all you say... You don't qualify who is the neighbor. Well, then that's when the human mind starts running, running amok, doesn't it? Well, Scott and I don't live next door to each other. He's not my neighbor. King lives over at Roswell. I mean, he's not my neighbor. What about the homeless? The homeless is not my neighbor. He don't even have a house. How can he be my neighbor? You know, what about the stranger that's passing through that's, you know, the Johnny Passon that's just here passing through because he lives in Pittsburgh? I mean, how we can't, there's no way we can be neighbors. What about the guy that just moved down here from Wisconsin? You know, he doesn't talk like us, he doesn't think like us, he actually thinks Wisconsin plays football. I mean, has he ever seen Alabama play? I mean, come on. You see, I'm, these are silly points, but what I'm saying is that it's very easy for us to find these barriers 
that can justify saying that person's not my neighbor. It may be race. It may be sex. It may be where you work. Around here, it can be socioeconomic. You know, well, those people, you know, they're, they're in a certain economic bracket. And, you know, they're not with the rest of us. They don't have seven-figure homes. We see it at the schools, you know. I mean, you can drive through the parking lot over at the high school and think, wow, uh, I didn't think anything could dwarf the dealerships down here on Highway 9, but that parking lot can. It can be the envy of all these car dealership owners, right? All right. So at first it makes it seem as though the second part's accurate, that, that maybe we should hate, maybe we should distinguish, maybe we should be prejudiced or biased toward other people. But the words of Scripture were well known, um, but only partially taught and practiced. So the, the rabbinic tradition was to focus on love your neighbor, everybody could agree on that, but not say anything about the other. You know, what about this other part? What about the enemy part? Where where you find that? Well, we'll get to that later. You know, or how can you love? And this is the way they this is the way they would justify it. I made reference a minute ago. Is they would go, well, wait a minute. What did God do when when we came from Egypt? I mean, what did God do to the Egyptians? He destroyed them, didn't he? And then, and then when they went across the wilderness and they went into the promised land, what did God say? God said, I want you to purge these people, kill these people. These people are immoral. They're pagans. They're idolaters. You name it, these, that's what these people are. So I want you to kill them. God's made those distinctions. We're God's people. That's what they were doing. That's what they were going convoluting in their minds and what they were teaching. If not directly... They were doing it by implication, you know, by, by not talking about loving your enemy and treating your enemy as a neighbor. So, there was perversion by omission. Very often the words of Scripture were contradicted by rabbinic tradition. Rather than love neighbors as self, they made it more manageable by just dropping self. Love your neighbor. Wait, didn't it say like yourself? Nah, don't worry about that part. Just love your neighbor. Focus on loving your neighbor. Just be positive with it. Why do you always got to be negative and bring me down? You know, what does that even mean, like yourself? Nobody loves their self. Just, your neighbor a bone just love your neighbor. Take care of your neighbor. Quit worrying about all this other stuff. That's just, <laughs> like yourself is a pretty important qualifier, isn't it? <clears throat> These leaders believe they deserved honor and exaltation. Matthew 6, 2, 5, and 16, Shirley. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their rewards in full. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their rewards in full. The... Um 
the ideal portrait of one of these leaders in the rabbinic tradition is found in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We reference this all the time. You've heard it over and over and over. It's not, it's not anything novel for you. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus is telling this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector going up to the temple to pray. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth in these people's minds. They were Jews that had sold their soul to the Romans. They were doing the bidding of the Romans. They were, they were coming and collecting taxes. And, and they were every bit as crooked as the day was long. All they could get, they worked on commission. The Romans said, you got to get X number of dollars, X percentage of, of dollars out of these people. If you hit this bell, anything over that, you get to keep. That's your pay. You tell me if I collect 100 bucks, that's 25 of it's going to be mine. That means if I collect 150, 100 of it's mine. Because you won't know what I collected, right? Maybe they had to report it, maybe they didn't. But this is the climate. So, these guys were the scum of the earth, and everybody detested them. From the, from the impoverished all the way up to the richest. Everybody. These guys, nobody liked them. Nobody. And you understand why, right? So, the temple. You've got a Pharisee, one of these rabbinic tradition teaching guys that thinks he's better than everybody else in the room. He thinks he, thinks he keeps the law. He is similar to the rich young ruler that showed up at Jesus when Jesus said, you've heard of the law? And he said, oh yeah, I keep the law. I keep it. So he's up there praying and saying, thank you, God. There's a tax collector over here who's not willing to even stand in the center. He's standing off in the shadows to the edge of the temple. He's so embarrassed. He's so humiliated to be in there. He knows he doesn't belong, but he's broken over who he is and what he's about and everything about his life. He knows he's the dregs of the earth. This other guy thinks he's commanding everything. He's standing in the center. He's looking up to God. His chest is bowed out. He's proud as a peacock and he's crowing. I thank you that you made me a Pharisee. I thank you that you made me supreme of all people. Your people, your people, the chosen people. And I'm one of the chosen of the chosen. I'm chosen out of the chosen. I'm not like that tax gift collector that scuzzball that that creep that thief that guy i dare he even be in this temple i'm thank you that you didn't make me like him but you made me like this and that my friends was the attitude of these guys with all due respect to david <laughs> being too hard on them that's who these guys are and that's who jesus is addressing with this Love your neighbor. You say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they teach you. Look down on your enemy. Condescend to your enemy. That's what they're teaching you. You've heard that. You've heard it over and over and over. But I say to you, love your neighbor and love your enemy as you do yourself. Talk about throwing gas on the fire. Perversion by omission. So they perverted the law by leaving things out. They also perverted the law by adding things to it. 
They perverted the teaching about love your neighbor by adding something to it. They added hate your enemy. It was the logical extension of their all-consuming self-interest and hatred. It was what they were. It's who they were. And so they taught it as an extension of the law. It's what they wanted. The Gentiles were considered not to be neighbors. There was a Pharisee um, saying that if a Jew sees a Gentile falling into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it's written, Thou shalt not rise up the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. That's what the, that was, a, that was a, uh, a teaching that they practiced, a saying in their culture. If you see him drowning, let him drown. He's not your neighbor. You don't have to help him. Romans, the Romans even charged the Jews with hatred of the human race. One excuse Jews used to justify their hatred of Gentiles was God's command to drive out the Canaanites. I told you that already. Um, those inhabitants were considered vile, wicked, immoral, and idolatrous to the extreme. They even practiced human sacrifice. So that seemed to be a, a good excuse to use. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the wars of Israel were the, most, were the only holy wars in history. For they were the wars of God against the world of idols. It is not this enmity which Jesus condemns. For then he would have condemned the whole history of God's dealing with his people. On the contrary, he affirms the old covenant. So this was about God's judgment and Israel was his tool. Israel was his tool of discipline that he was wielding against the uh, Canaanites, Ammonites, Midianites, you know, Moabites, all those ites. Um, Psalm 69, 22 through 24. Did I give that to anybody? Okay, let me cut it up. Psalm 69, 22 through 24. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. It's one thing to have righteous indignation and defend God's glory by seeking the defeat of His enemies. It's quite different to hate people personally as enemies. And that's the point that, that we need to make, the distinction we need to make. So what was Jesus' perspective and teaching? Well, in five statements, Jesus proclaims the kind of love that God has always required of His people. This is the love that must characterize everyone who goes by the name of of the Lord. What are those statements? Number one, love your enemies. It's a monumental teaching regarding love throughout the New Testament, throughout the whole of Scripture. God expects His people to love so fiercely. He expects us to love so fiercely that we cannot help but love our enemies. William Hendrickson said it this way. He said, all around him were those walls and fences. He came for the very purpose of bursting those barriers so that love Pure, warm, divine, infinite would be able to flow straight down from the heart of God. Hence, from his own marvelous heart into the hearts of men. His love overleaped all the boundaries of race, nationality, party, age, and sex. When he said, I love you, or I tell you, love your enemies, he must have startled his audience. But he was saying something that probably never, had, never before had been said so succinctly, positively, and forcefully. 
The scribes and Pharisees were proud, prejudiced, judgmental, spiteful, hateful, vengeful men who masqueraded as the custodians of God's law and the spiritual leaders of Israel. They not only felt they had the right but the duty to hate their enemies. Not to hate those who obviously deserve to be hated would be a breach of righteousness. They believed to not hate the right people meant that they were unrighteous. The Old Testament concept of neighbor included even personal enemies. That's the truth Jesus expands in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The point is to show that God, God's requirement is for us to be neighbors to anyone who needs our help. The human, human tendency is, the base, is to base the love on the desirability of the object of our love, right? My love is equivalent to the desirability of the object of my love. Okay, a nice looking, attractive person, that person deserves my love. I desire to love that person. But the person who's not appealing physically or in the way they treat people and their behavior, their, their personality and things like that, mm, they don't deserve my love. And that, and that a lot of the ways that we, we uh, operate in our minds Christ is teaching that we should love irrespective of the desirability of the object. In fact, we should love that which is unlovable and undesirable. The second statement he gives us is pray for your persecutors. All men live with some sense of sin and guilt. Guilt produces fear, which in its ultimate form is fear of death, of what is beyond death. In various ways, therefore, most people have devised religious beliefs, rituals, and practices they, they are convinced will offer them some relief from guilt and judgment. Some people try to get rid of guilt simply by denying it or by denying the existence of a God who holds men accountable for sin. Throughout history, the worst persecutions have been religious. Because persecution is so often the world's response to God's truth, the Lord assures us that just as He was persecuted, so will we be. So this command to pray for those who persecute us is applicable to all of us. Isn't it? It's going to be a time. I was reading uh, today at least three or four instances of um, open hostility. I won't say persecution as yet, but it's brewing. Uh, there's a guy that, um, I've forgotten now where he's at. Um, he's at some uh, university, and, and he just uh, he quoted something from an article. Uh, on his Twitter feed or something, and the I think it was the president of that university came out and accused him of, you know, being all these things. And he said, "I'm not. I'm a Christian. I believe this. I believe that." And um, um, so he's getting taken to task. There were two or three of the articles in the same thread that were focused on the same kind of things going on in our culture today. So it's heating up even in our own country. Uh, you know, where free speech has been our our golden child, right, for for a long time, but it's starting to be taken away or um, pressure is rising against those who say the wrong things with their freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is for those who say things about the right things the right way, right? Um, we must love because of, uh, let's see, we must love them because of who they are, sinners falling from the image of, of God and in need of um, 
God's forgiveness and, and grace. Chrysostom said that prayer is the very highest summit of self-control. Pray for your persecutors. It's, he says it's the apex of self-control. That we want to lash out in anger. We want to be vindictive. We want to hate. We want to feel badly about someone. But when we pray, we're actually putting the control, self-control, applying discipline to how we feel, to our emotions. And so it's a way of controlling uh, what we naturally want to do. We have most brought our um, lives into conformity to God's standards when we can pray for our persecutors. The third statement from Jesus is manifest your sonship. Display whose you are. Display your relationship to God. To love our enemies and pray for a persecutor shows that we are sons of God. Because that's not what the rest of the world does, is it? The rest of the world says it's okay to take out your uh, vindictiveness against those that you uh, consider to be enemies. This is how God loves, and we love because He first loved us. He's our, our, our pattern. He's our, the one who gives, he's, the, he's our sovereign God who gives us these instructions, and we're to love as He loves, loving as God loves. <clears throat> this doesn't make us sons of the Father, but it gives evidence that we are sons of the Father. One of the most common and damaging criticisms directed at Christians is the claim that we do not live up to our faith, that we don't live out what we claim to be, right? We're accused of being hypocrites and things of that nature. When we, when we focus on loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, we're never more like Christ in those instances. And when we give ourselves to that task in that way, God will magnify Himself. He displays His glory in us and through us and draws attention unto Himself. Fourth statement, exceed your fellow men. The scribes and Pharisees were convinced they were better than everyone else. Jesus' teaching collides with their ideas about themselves. Their love was purely self-centered and self-serving. Jesus' instructed, instruction was to love these enemies, uh, insulted them. To be told they had to love their enemies insulted them. He confronted their practice of love. It's no different than the people they hated. God's people are expected to have a higher standard. Exceed what's normal for other people. However they may act, we should be living above that with our compassion and care for others. And be like your Heavenly Father was the fifth statement that he gives. Be like your Heavenly Father. Romans 5.8 says, While we were sinners, hateful, rebellious, at enmity with God, He loved us and sent Christ to die for us, for our sin. We are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We can't do this on our own, can we? No. We, we, can't, we can't do this by ourselves. Only through Christ working in us and through us can we demonstrate perfect love. And so Jesus wants us to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy and desperate need for Him. Bible college professor Johanna Catanacho pastored a small church in the Israeli city of Jerusalem. As a Palestinian living in Israel and a Christian to boot, he faced a wide variety of persecution. One of the more dangerous forms of harassment comes from the Israeli soldiers who patrol the city looking for potential terrorists. 
These soldiers routinely impose spontaneous curfews on Palestinians and even have the legal right to shoot at a Palestinian if he or she does not respond quickly enough to their summons. Christ's commands in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies seemed impossible to Johanna, and, and yet there it was, unambiguous and unchanging. For me, love was an active countercultural decision because I was living in a culture that promoted hatred of the other, Johanna says. And not only did the context promote hate, but the circumstances fed it on a daily basis. The newspapers, television, media, neighbors, everything. One of the markers of the Israeli Jews and the Palestinian Arabs is alienating the other. To break that marker, I must have some other worldview. At first, Johanna tried and failed in his attempts to feel love. Instead, the Israeli soldiers random daily checks for Palestinian identification cards, sometimes stopping them for hours, fed Johanna's fear and anger. As he confessed his inability to God, Johanna realized something significant. The radical love of Christ is not an emotion, but a decision. He decided to show love, however reluctantly, by sharing the gospel message with the soldiers on the street. With new resolution, Johanna began to carry copies of a flyer with him written in Hebrew and English with a quotation from Isaiah 53 and the words, Real Love, printed across the top. Every time a soldier stopped him, he handed him both his ID card and the flyer. Because the quote came from the Hebrew Scriptures, the soldiers usually asked him about it before letting him go. After several months of this, Johanna suddenly noticed his feelings toward the soldiers had changed. I was surprised, you know. He says, it was a process, but I didn't pay attention to that process. My older feelings were not there anymore. I would pass in the same street, see the same soldiers as before, but now, finding my, but now find myself praying, Lord, let them stop me so that I can share with them the love of Christ. This is what Jesus is teaching in verses 43 through 48 about loving our neighbors. And loving our enemies. You have any questions?